Today, I want to talk to you about living your life in a way that matters. I want to, I want to talk to you about making sure that 10 seconds after you're gone from this earth, your life counted for something. I want to talk to you today about living what's called a missional life. The term missional is kind of a buzzword right now in evangelical circles, and I mean that in theological evangelical circles. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the, the other meanings of evangelical in our culture. I'm talking about true, conservative, theological evangelicals. It, missional is a, is a buzzword. And the reason it's a buzzword is because it is igniting in a, a segment of church culture people, especially young people, that want to make sure their life counts. The word missional is probably not new to our era, but it is a word which began to take on a different kind of meaning um, about, I don't know, 35 years ago. A guy by the name of Francis DuBose, who is a Baptist seminary professor, wrote a book called The God Who Sins, and he's the first one that we can find that used the word missional in the context that we are thinking of it. How he, he thought about uh, missional was the idea that the very nature of God is that God is ascending God, that, that God so loved the world that He gave, that the Word that was with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us, that God by His very nature is a God who goes and loves and redeems. And he said that in order for us to take on the character of God in the American church, we have to be people who are characterized by that going and that redeeming mission, which was countercultural to church life. Because you and I grew up in a world that, that saw churches do business this way. We would stand up in our community and we'd say, hey, everybody, come and hear and so we invited people to come in, and that began to be less and less effective, but because churches are not prone to really being quick on the uptake about that kind of things, we just decided we'd do that harder, and it kept being less and less effective. And what the missional idea is, is that, well, they're not going to come. We live in a post-Christian America. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we do. We live in a post-Christian America. It's not all those other places. It's right here too. And by post-Christian America, I mean that we have gone past the apex of Christianity holding the floor culturally and morally and in every other way. We live in a post-Christian America. And in a post-Christian America, people generally are not going to respond to, hey, come to church. And what we have to do then, if we're going to reach our, 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 our family and reach our culture, reach our towns, we're going to have to go to them. We're going to have to be missional. In, in that sense, we're, we're going to have to be like someone like Adam Bailey. Adam Bailey grew up in our church. He went to seminary here locally. He was uh, honored for his academic work in seminary, which is something that was completely foreign to me. I, I was, I, they were honored I left, but they were not, they were not honored that I was there. Um, but Adam was, uh, received honors for the work that he did, and he could have taken a church here locally somewhere, inherited a church. That was what success was in, in my seminary days. Success was um, go to First Church County Seat America, go to large suburban Bible Belt USA church and, and inherit something. But Adam represents a, a, 
a new group of Christian leader that says, rather than inherit, I'm going to go and I'm going to plant and I'm going to go where, where, where churches aren't and build my life there. And so that's, that's what he's doing in West Des Moines, Iowa, establishing a church there. He represents what is happening among Christian leaders all across America. But if it's going to be successful, it's going to have to happen here. It's going to have to happen here. We're going to have to understand that the epicenter of Christian evangelism and Christian mission in the world is not your pew. It is your backyard, your office cubicle, your classroom. And we're going to have to learn what it means to live the mission of life. And we get a great example of what that means as we look at an otherwise anonymous man named Gaius. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? John, who refers to himself in 2 John and 3 John as the elder, is writing a very personal letter to a man, to a man named Gaius. And in his greeting and commendation of Gaius, we learn what it is to live the missional life. Verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And that's a reference to Gaius being a convert of John's, not an actual child. I have no greater joy than to hear that someone I've won to the Lord and has been influenced by my ministry is walking in the truth. Verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. It's clear in those words, those warm, powerful words, that Gaius is someone whose life maybe we ought to pay attention to. And we're going to do that this morning, learning what it means to live a missional life, first seeing that to live the missional life is to live a life of gospel integrity. I want you to hone in on that and think about it gospel integrity. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that you do not pass go, you do not collect $200 if you are not living a life of gospel integrity. And Gaius was a man who possessed that kind of integrity. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 2. This is one of those verses you might otherwise just fly right past, but it's really pretty important. Verse 2, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, that's called in Bible student terms a prayer wish. It's, it's a way of saying, I hope you're really doing well. We say that when we see someone or encounter someone we've not seen in a while. Hey, you're doing good. I hope you're doing well. It'd be real easy to pass it off as nothing more than that, except look at how he packages it. I pray that it all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Do you catch the logic here? He's saying, I know you. And man, spiritually, you're knocking it out of the park. You are authentic. You are committed. It's obvious in every aspect of your life that you love Jesus. And the very best thing I can pray for your physical health is that you would be as physically healthy as what you obviously are 
spiritually healthy. You see that? He's saying you, you are something else below the surface. And it, the best thing I can think about your health is to pray that you would have that same kind of success. Physically, there was a connection between the inner life and the outer life that John was praying for physically, but that outer life was being seen not in its physical health, it was being seen in the, in the obvious authenticity with which Gaius lived his Christian life. Verse 3, he says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Who are the brothers? Well, the brothers, and we're going to find this out a little bit more in a moment, were people who had gone out from John and his probably church to expand the Christian mission. They were missionaries, to use our vernacular. And they had, on their journey, encountered Gaius and had come back giving the same kind of glowing report of Gaius spiritually, his commitment to Jesus that was obvious to John that he had always suspected was true of Gaius. And so all of this comes together and he says, man, you're doing great. There is a connection point. There is something that is very clear that your inner life, what you profess with your mouth is true in how you conduct your life. That's gospel integrity. It's living a life where there is no inconsistency between what we claim to believe and how we actually live. I wrote this sermon the week that I conducted a funeral service for a man named Hugh Rapp, and almost no one in this room uh, knows who Hugh Rapp is. He's been gone for several years, went to live in St. Joe uh, in his latter years to be close to family, but Hugh Rapp is one of the titans of Blue Valley Baptist Church. Not a charter member, but like week two he showed up, and he just began to invest his life. He just began to serve Jesus in this place. He was not the kind of guy whose personality was bombastic and you'd be drawn, through, drawn to. He was not one of these rallying point kinds of leaders that can walk into a room, you know the type, that come into a room and you know they're there. He was not that kind of guy. But when he spoke, everybody listened because there was a consistency between what Hugh Rapp said he believed and how he lived. And the currency upon which the gospel will be exchanged in our culture is that kind of integrity. I've said already that we live in a post-Christian America. And it's super easy. I mean, it would be the easiest thing in the world, frankly, to do, to blame it on outside forces. To say, well, it's everybody else's fault. We're doing good. Let me tell you what's going on. The average Christian and the average church has lost the plot. We've lost the plot. We have, we have begun to live lives that say one thing and show another, morally, ethically, but also in just out-and-out out hypocrisy. I say that the reason that we live in a post-Christian America is because far too many Americans have actually met a Christian, and it's not been a favorable experience. And so what are we to do? What are we to do to move past the scandal that we see in some American churches and move past the whininess that we see as we listen to Americans talk about their situation or post on social media? What do we do to move past all of that? We build a new picture, and that picture is of someone whose life actually reflects what they claim to believe. 
We live lives of gospel integrity. That is how the the country and the West, and by that I mean the Western world, can be one. That there is consistency in how we leave, uh, live. This was something that Jesus himself modeled for us. We see it in his life. People who wanted nothing to do with the religious elite flocked to Jesus. In fact, he was criticized for it. You've got some, you've got some trash hanging around you, Jesus. And he said, I know. Isn't it awesome? It's awesome because they need what I'm selling. They actually need what you claim to sell, but they've actually seen that you're kind of a hypocrite. So they've rejected God's message because they're rejecting you. I'm coming, and I'm transparent, and I'm authentic, and there is a match between what I say and how I live And people are drawn to that, and he changed the world because of that. He models for us the need to be people of gospel integrity. So that's the first thing that we see in Gaius' life that we need. Next, we see from his life that the missional life is a life of gospel action. In other words, the actual mission of the church is engaged by someone living a missional life. The actual mission of the church. There are a lot of good things that that being a follower of Jesus is going to result in. There are lots of good causes that being a follower of Jesus will drive us to participate in. You, You live life as a citizen of another kingdom when you give your life to Jesus Christ. And so this world in which we live is a world in which we will always be in exile but we work for the welfare and the peace of the world in which we live. And so living out our faith will make a positive impact on the world in which we live. There are many good things that we can do. But our mission is to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not to recruit people to my cause of the month. It is not to recruit people to my political leanings. It's none of those things. It is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone to the point where they are confronted that they have to make a decision for or against. That is the mission. And if we are doing all of these other good things and never getting around to the heart of why we were left on planet Earth, we will not be fulfilling the mission. We may be active, but we are not engaged in gospel action. Gaius was a man of gospel integrity and gospel action, and we see that in verse 5. Let's walk through that slowly. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers. Remember, those are the missionaries sent out by John. You're doing something good for them, so he's celebrating that. And he even points out, it's not like you had a, you know, a previous relationship with, with these people. I mean, they were strangers to you. You didn't know them at all, you're, but you're, you're, you're doing a faithful thing for them. And then he speaks of those brothers. These brothers testified to your love before the church. So it's something like this. These, these men go out on their mission, and they come back with their, if you're of a certain age, their slideshow on a Sunday night at church. 
All right, everybody, this is, uh, this is uh, where we went here, and this is where we went here. Click. Wearing a shirt like this, by the way, if, uh, that's, that's way too old for some of you, but this was what was called a missionary shirt. Isn't that right? Fantastic. I need a, I need a felt board, and I'm golden. Anyway, anyway, they would do all that, but so that when they came back to the church, they're reporting on everything that would go on. They came to the slide of Gaius. Oh, this guy. All that we've done, all that we've reported to you, we couldn't have done without him. We couldn't have done it. He was faithful to us even though we were strangers. You're thinking, goodness, what did he do? Let's keep reading. You see in these words, John says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So apparently they're coming back, going out doing work, and they've stopped in on Gaius again. You will do well sending them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. He says, for they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That's very important, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. There were multiple kinds of missionaries that were in existence in the the first century world. Uh, People who were revealing uh, some vision they had been given by an oracle or, or introducing some kind of new idol. And these various cultic missionaries would go out into all of these different areas, these different towns, and say, I have the message that will bring you to enlightenment with the gods, and I will give it to you if you feed me and shelter me. And people would buy in, and they'd say, well, I need to hear that. And so, so the people that they were evangelizing were actually targets for their own financial and physical well-being. Christian missionaries didn't do that. We see that here. We see that in the book of Acts. When Christian missionaries went out to these areas that were among the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, they did not request or receive or take anything from the people that they were evangelizing because they believed that giving the free message of Jesus would be tangibly symbolized in their refusal to take any kind of financial remuneration or physical remuneration from these people they were attempting to reach with the gospel. So how did they, how did they keep going out and doing? Well, we see in the book of Acts, some of them had a side hustle. I mean, Paul's side hustle was, was building tents. And so if he needed to, he would make money building tents. But more often than not... They would find out that Christians lived in the area, and they would come to those Christians, and they would say, here's what we're doing, and they'd say, come in, we'll take care of you so you can devote all your time to doing that. So they had taken nothing from the people, these brothers, that they were attempting to evangelize, and so everything they did by way of mission was entirely dependent on Gaius saying, my life is on mission, I need to take action rather than just give verbiage to it so that these people can do the work that God has called them to do. And he goes on and is challenged in verse 8 by John to keep supporting and keep giving so that these people can do the work that God has called them to do. And so we obviously see in what Gaius had done for these missionaries that he was active in the mission. He had built his life in a certain way around the mission. And we can say, trying to draw connections to our own life, I see it. So what you're saying is that, that I need to maybe use my resources to support the mission of the gospel. And that's, you know, it's part of it, 
But I think you need to see the weight of it. I think you need to see the full extent of what it is that Gaius is doing. We, all of us, every one of us, by the world standards, are wealthy. And it's easy to think that because we have, I think for almost all of us, some disposable income, that what Gaius is being celebrated for doing here is taking some of his disposable income and allocating a part of that to the Christian mission enterprise. But that would be to vastly underappreciate what Gaius is doing. He is being portrayed here as someone who viewed that what the Lord had given him, all that the Lord had given him, belonged to the Lord for the sake of advancing the gospel. I read a book many years ago that had a profound impact from me, and I don't like to go back and read it again because it makes me feel bad. But the name of the book is called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Anybody here heard that book, read that book? Terrific book. It'll mess you up, but it's a terrific book. And he makes this deeply convicting statement about possessions in that book. He said, if we want to make people glad in God, which is his way of saying, if we want to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, if we want to live life of gospel action, if we want to live lives characterized by the mission, if we want to make people glad in God, our lives must look as if God, not possessions, is our joy. Ugh. That cuts me in half because I have so much. And Piper's point is that when we understand our mission as believers, all of the decisions we make in life about finances, about talents, about giftings, about where we live, about how we conduct our life, if every single decision we make in life, if we are living lives of gospel action, if we're living missionally, is filtered through the mission that Christ gave the church. In the same chapter, he illustrates this by remembering how World War II changed how Americans viewed their possessions. He says rubber was needed for the war effort and gasoline and metal. A woman's basketball game at Northwestern University was stopped so that the referee and all ten players could scour the floor for a lost bobby pin. That's how important metal was. Americans pitched in to support strict rationing programs and their boys turned out as volunteers in various collection drives. Soon, butter and milk were restricted along with canned goods and meat. Shoes became scarce and paper and silk. People grew victory gardens and drove at the gas-saving victory speed of 35 miles an hour. Americans looked at what they had, coming out of, mind you, the Great Depression looked at what they had, which for a vast majority of Americans wasn't much, and they said, the mission is worth my sacrifice. The mission is worth me doing without, so the mission can succeed. And what Piper argues in this book that you don't want to read is that Christians in a post-Christian world need to live on a wartime footing. We need to understand that everything we have, yes, our possessions, which is deeply convicting, but also our talents and our giftings, where our family lives, 
where our children who live just right down the road will live. And I can say this now, where our grandchildren will live. It requires us saying, all that I have, God, is yours for the sake of the mission and adapting your life to it as God leads you to it. The life that will make a difference, the life that's going to count 10 seconds after you're gone, the life that will ring through the halls of eternity is the missional life. And it is is not the sole property of vocational ministers like Adam Bailey or Derek Lynch or any other professional you can think of. It's something all of us are called to do. And to do that requires us thinking about missional living corporately and individually. Let's start corporately first. That's easy. At least it should be. We have a a mission, a vision here at Blue Valley Baptist Church. We've forgotten it a little bit because we've been busy dealing with the pandemic, but the the vision of Blue Valley Baptist Church is to establish, establish campuses locally and to plant autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally by 2028, which is our 50th anniversary. We believe that we need to be in the business of bringing our resources and the object of our church's um, attention around to the idea of multiplying out beyond that place. And it's very easy for us to say, but why? Why would we do this? The most recent data that I have been able to locate indicates that 20% of the American population attends church regularly. 20%. You say, well, not here in Johnson County. You know what? You're right. 25% of Johnson County attends church on a regular basis. That means that about 450,000 Johnson County residents this morning didn't give the first thought about going to church. With the population growth in America right now, we, in order to stay at that 20% threshold, need to probably reach for the gospel, convert from lostness to light, to bring to salvation in Jesus Christ. We need to win 20 million people to Jesus Christ by 2050. 20 million. And the means and the vehicle by which that happens is church planting. So you say, well, do we Do we have enough churches to be able to do that? Let me give you some statistics that ought to shock you. Every year in America, 4,000 churches close their doors and never open them again. I expect a big spike in that because of the pandemic. Some of these smaller churches that are struggling, I just worry about ever, ever opening back up. But right now, 4,000 churches in America close their doors. You say, well, how many are we planting? Well, a little bit of good news. We plant about 4,500 churches across all denominations in America each year. So that's a 500 net gain. You say, well, sounds like me. We're doing pretty good. If every church that we planted ended up 
reaching an average attendance of 200 people, which, by the way, would place those churches in the top 25% of church attendance in America. Blue Valley Baptist Church is in the top 4% of churches in America. And if you're at 200, you're in the top 25%. So we're talking, we're talking that's successful. In order for us to be able to reach those 20 million by current missiological standards, we would need to have a net gain of churches of 2,500 a year through 2050. Which means that, because 4,000 are closing, we need to be planning as the American church 6,500 churches a year. There's literally no place you can go in Johnson County, in Kansas, Nebraska, in the United States of America that doesn't need a church if we're going to be on mission. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're called to do this. It's because this is where the hope of a post-Christian America lies. Not in power culturally or politically. It lies in the church buying into, for the first time in probably 150 years in America, its mission. That's what it requires. So what does it require of me individually? Well, it requires us filtering all aspects of our life through the mission. Is my life a life that someone can look at and know what it means to follow Jesus? Am I giving a good witness for them? Am I giving a testimony to them with how I conduct my life, what I claim to believe? It's going to require that at the personal level, and then it's going to require us, as I've said already, viewing every single thing we have down to our possessions and our relationships as means by which God can accomplish His mission through us. And if we will do that, we'll still face opposition in the culture in which we live. But we'll face opposition because we're doing our job, not because we're being jerks and whining. We'll be facing opposition because we're doing our job. And let me say something to you. The gates of hell cannot stand against that. So that's what we need to be doing. That's the mission of life. And you need to pray that your pastor wakes up with this every day. Your elders wake up with this every day. That you wake up with this every day. This is what matters. The mission of life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.